Since 1957, the Germanic-American Institute has been building cultural bridges between the American Midwest and German-speaking European countries. And this is our podcast. We cordially invite you on the inside to join us as we share insights into German grammar, the German cultural experience, we'll look at current topics, and we will let you know all about the events that we are involved in and you can participate in. At times, we will also invite guests on the show who'll share their knowledge and experiences with us and will answer any questions you may have about our content or the GAI itself. Willkommen to the Germanic American Institute podcast. And this is exactly one of those special episodes. We get to have the privilege to welcome Fred Amram to our studio. At the GAI, Fred has a bit of a legendary status. He is a retired University of Minnesota professor and an author, yet he continues to teach and speak. Particularly, he speaks about the Holocaust. Fred is a survivor. Considering Fred's story, it is almost an open invitation to define him as just that, as a survivor, and look at him only through the lenses of cultural teachings and academic historic significance. Yet, to define Fred only by these parameters would be unjust and not allow us to see the person himself. Please enjoy this episode with Fred Amram at the GAI. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to actually join us, to share your story, talk once again about you. You have a lot to share, and I'm certainly just wanting to invite you to begin with, for those who are not familiar with you. Who is Fred Amram? That's a very hard question, but I do want to say it's fun to be with you again, Michael. Uh, Michael was one of my German teachers when I was reviewing German, trying to to relearn what I had forgotten. Um, who am I? I'm a new person every day, I think. Uh, just, well, to back up, as Michael suggested, uh, I survived the Holocaust, uh, which means that I'm very old. Um, and so I'm needing to revisit myself every day, really, as the aches and pains come and as my view of life changes. So who am I? Um, I try to not frame myself as a survivor. Um, my son, who is also a writer, is envious of me because he says, well, your story is so much more exciting uh, as, as though I had tried to become <laughs> a survivor. Um, it's it's something that happened to me, and certainly it shaped me in some way. But I see myself much more in the fact that I had a, a career of 50 years working at the University of Minnesota. Um, I have a wife, I have children, I have grandchildren. Um, and all of that makes who I am. I'm, I'm an angry person sometimes politically. I have traditionally opposed any kind of tyranny, including American tyranny. When we 
visits the book just in broad strokes without giving too much away of the We Are America story. Um, if you if you put the synopsis on your book, um, what is the high level overview? Of course, I want to encourage people to actually reach out and purchase the book, but just to give them an idea as to what's actually in the book, what can we expect? And, and we should say that the GAI sells the book, mm -hmm. and it's a fundraiser, and so not only does it sell my book, but it brings a few dollars to the GAI. So that's wonderful. Thank you. A synopsis. Um, it's really the story of becoming. It's the story of a boy becoming a man. There are thousands of books about boys becoming men. Uh, I start off as a child. I become a rather naughty teenager. Um, and then there is a little bit of adulthood. We go, we go to college and introduce the reader to my introduction to, to girls in college and having a good time. Uh, all of it, though, is colored by the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, and it begin, the book begins by telling stories of, of my going to the park, for example, and there is a park bench that says, Nur für Juden only for Jews, and, and, and the next week, all the other benches in the park say, Nua Aria, only for Aryans. Um, and those were the good days, because a year later, Jews couldn't go to the park at all, and the year after that, um, Jews were being hauled away to the camps. Did the, the significance of the degradation, did it sink in at that moment? Was it computable and understandable and sort of the writing was on the wall? Or was it sort of a slow degradation that happened without much objections? For me, going to the park as a five-year-old and a six-year-old, it had little of what you're describing. That is... I didn't have the big picture. Mm -hmm. There were some in Germany at that time, some Jews who saw the writing on the wall, who said, this is not going to be better, and tried to escape. And in those early days, before the death camps, before the final solution, leaving Germany was easy. The hard part was finding somewhere to go. No countries wanted to increase its quotas. And even though the whole world knew about Kristallnacht, uh, nobody really cared. So some Jews tried to, to leave and couldn't because they had nowhere to go. Um, other Jews didn't try very hard. Uh, initially, I remember my father saying, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. um, and and my mother and father arguing, because uh, my mother had the sense that um, things were getting worse and worse and getting worse quickly. Uh, we have to leave, and they'll, they'll hurt our son. That's me. Yeah. And uh, 
But my father felt good about everything until eventually he got hauled off, and then we were able then to to escape, to leave. So your your father was picked up, hauled off, collected. Uh yeah, into uh, the enforced labor. Mm -hmm. uh, we would now call it slave labor. Uh, he was hauled off into the TIFBO, the road yeah. construction. And uh, how did you experience that moment? In the book, I talk about how I became an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about how the Gestapo used to come uh, to our ho our home, our apartment. Um, knock, knock, knock. Um, they'd search for whatever. I always hid behind my mother. Uh, I was terrified. You know, their um, wonderful uniforms that the Gestapo had that were not only fear-inspiring, but awe-inspiring for a kid. Um, and the Gestapo would come. Uh, one day they came searching for radios. Jews will not have radios. We will come back to check. And, and they did. And But after my father was no longer at home when the Gestapo came, um, I felt that I was the man of the house mm -hmm. and stood in front of my mother rather than hiding behind her skirt. The and growing I think, up overnight. Yeah, and... Yeah. and uh, yeah, and I think there was there was one experience when they came and they hauled my father's business away. And the, the last line is, uh, I think that was the last time I cried. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not true, because then as an adult now, I cry all the time. But I've become a child again. I've become human again. The, con the context of those last tears uh, fundamentally different, obviously, than the context of the tears nowadays. What led you down the path of teaching and particularly down the path, and I'm, I'm bridging, obviously, decades now in between the development of, of Fred Amram, but what led you particularly down the path of becoming what I would call a gentle activist? Oh, I love that, Michael. A gentle activist. Oh, I'm going to take that home. That's <laughs> nice. Um, I don't know. People like to say that I became an activist because of my experiences. And that's a nice way to s express it. But there are hundreds of thousands of activists who didn't have my Holocaust experience. And they're still gentle activists uh, without that experience. So it's hard to say what made, what makes a person what mm -hmm. he or she is. Um, what made you choose that particular path? Because you could have, I mean, the world at that point, uh, having escaped, was more or less, I would say, more open to you again to choose any path. Any path. That, that you would see fitting for you. It was, it was remarkable. I, I, uh, 
And I say in the book often how my father would stand up and say, we're in America now, which is how I got the name of the book. We're in America now. In America, all kinds of paths were open to me uh, because I'm just a little guy. I could never be a football player. But pretty much everything else was open. And initially, though, after high school, uh, I, I was about to become a chemist. Um, we were required to take a communication class, and I fell in love with that. And, and I was very good at the communication, but also as a student. And uh, my professor encouraged me to go to graduate school. And I just stumbled into becoming a professor and educator. Um, and in the process, stumbled into becoming an activist. I, uh, uh, during the 60s, then into the 70s, and when Lyndon Johnson had the war on poverty, mm -hmm. um, the University of Minnesota had an anti-poverty program of its own, which became bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was at the right place at the right time, and I became its director, mm -hmm. director of the Help Center, Higher Education for Low-Income Persons. But I didn't set out to say, I'm going to run an anti-poverty program. Most of my life, I have blundered into the next move. So in other words, you were ready when the, pro when the opportunity really presented itself, but obviously you had to lay a lot of groundwork to actually make those opportunities happen. It, it, certainly, it certainly contributed. However, I know all kinds of Holocaust survivors who are bigots, who don't like African Americans in their neighborhood, uh, and and that that really blows me away because the stereotype is what you're describing, Michael. That here I had these horrific experiences, and they made me sensitive to the needs of people. But that's not necessarily what happens. So uh, when we talk about cultural sensitivity and the need to accept others as they are, what could possess someone to, to disregard people of color or people of other belief systems to the degree to which they were discarded and disregarded in their own past? There are those who argue that our brain is wired for some things. There's a wonderful book, which name I'm blocking on right now, by Frank Haight. H-A-I-G-H-T, a psychologist, who has a good deal of evidence that people are born to be Republicans or Democrats. That is, their conception of what is fair. Mm -hmm. It's fair to give to other people versus it's fair, if I work hard, that I'm allowed to keep that and I should choose how much I should give away. Um, he argues that that's inborn. And new brain theory is, is corroborating that kind of stuff all the time. Others are, what happened to the people who become, who grow into becoming 
bigoted. Where did they come from? <coughs> they may have in their in their early days at home experienced that kind of selfishness or bigotry or narrow mindedness or and of course we're putting a frame around it that I'm I'm using my language which already is biased against bigoted people. I am personally concerned when I look at today's social developments and political landscape, where are we headed? Uh, should we be concerned? Uh, and if so, to what degree? What What is your perspective on, on that since we're already on, that, on the social development front? History shows us that there is a constant swing. Mm -hmm. we, we go further to the left, then there's a reaction and we move to the right, but not quite as far as we did before, then further to the left, and then back a ways. We're on a backswing now, aren't we? Uh, we don't, right now we're back to where we were in 1930s, mm -hmm. when Jews couldn't find a place to settle, mm -hmm. were refugees, and couldn't find citizenship. And we have people from Syria and people from uh, Nigeria looking for a place to settle who are authentic refugees. I, I don't mean immigrants looking for a better life. Yeah. I mean authentic refugees who are scouring the world and they're not being welcomed. Uh, and that's not just in the United States. Uh, it seems to be around the world. I think we're, we're, we're having a, a swing to the right. Uh, am I worried about it? It seems to me that anybody who is a member of any minority group ought to be terrified. Uh, they're always going to come after the Jews. You know, I'm always looking over my shoulder to see who's behind me to, to this day hmm? to this day even to this day yeah and it the biggest hate crime in the united states the land of milk and honey is anti-semitic mm -hmm. um, i'm not nearly as worried about <coughs> the 11 people who were shot in a synagogue in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago, as I am, but all of the other anti-Semitic crimes around the country every day. Which are on the rise, statistically. Which are on the rise, statistically, exactly. And which we don't read about a lot because they may not be as dramatic as Pittsburgh. Uh, when I look at today's media landscape, we are being bombarded at all times at a breakneck speed that really gives us very little opportunity to discern what is truly newsworthy and if it even is presented as news, does it have news content and actually does it bring us forward or does it regress us further back? And this, is, uh, I suppose, plays a little to your idea of we are going more toward the 1930s again with uh, ethnocentrism 
and with blocking off borders and with not being accepting to those who truly need to find acceptance in the place to stay. Because if you hadn't had the opportunity when you fled uh, Nazi Germany, we wouldn't be sitting here today. So who are we to, to say you as a refugee, a war refugee, whether that's Syria, Afghanistan, wherever uh, people manage to escape from, who are we to say you are not allowed when in part our partaking actually causes their, their refugee status? Mm-hmm. Where is the line of acceptance? Where do we need to say, okay, let's let's step back and let's let's be welcoming and let's be, as we say, a mensch? Or to reach out and care about what's happening in other countries. If after Kristallnacht, if not well before then, countries around the world had said, no, we're not going to allow you to treat your people in that way, then we wouldn't have had to have refugees. That is, preventing genocide is even better than dealing with genocide. Dealing with genocide is something we have to do right here and now. But if we could prevent it, if we really cared about what's happening in Syria and Nigeria and and Afghanistan, if we, if the United States had entered the fray a whole lot before December 7th, when they ultimately entered the fray reluctantly, mm-hmm. then we'd have never gotten to the, there. The Nazis could not have accomplished what they accomplished if other countries had said, no, you can't do that. We know in 1935 with the Nuremberg Laws, they took away my citizenship. But you're a citizen again. Yeah, but but they, they took away all Jewish citizenships. This major portion of... Uh, of, of of the German population. Now, and Jews had to have special ID cards. Temporarily, when the United States current president first became president, um, there was talk of special identity cards for Muslims. Yeah. And, and I wrote an op-ed piece at the time uh, for the Star Tribune, mm-hmm. in, in, in which I said how my wife had said right off the bat, if that's the case, she said, I'll go and register as a Muslim. And I said, I would too. Mm-hmm. And perhaps you would too, Michael. And then if we all registered as Muslims, then you can't discriminate against Muslims. If all Germans or all Europeans, or all world citizens had registered as Jews at that time, it would be really hard to discriminate against. But at the same time, uh, uh, there is, of course, the element of fear that's sitting behind, and the element, as I I said earlier, a little bit of ethnocentrism, where people just blatantly refuse to see the human element in other people. When we talk about any genocide... Mm -hmm. 
we talk about perpetrators and we talk about victims. The population we need to talk about most is the bystanders. Whether because of fear or because of lack of interest, if people really hate Jews, well, that's, they're going to act that out and go for it. But most of the people were bystanders. And if most of the people were bystanders, to me, they were perpetrators. I lump them into with the bad guys. You either disagree or you agree. Inevitably, you're taking a position whether you move against it or not, at which point, even as a bystander, you are taking a position of, of, of approval. Essentially, is what you're, what you're summarizing. Makes, makes perfect sense that those who do nothing still do something. Which I'm wondering about today's generation and what your perspective particularly as an educator also what do we still need to teach those who are growing up today in regards to the holocaust what what do we need to ensure that they understand in a framework that is applicable to today as well so not just historically but also socio-critical that we are not that far off we're always just one dictator away from the next atrocity what do we need to get across that they actually understand? And predominantly, how do? It seems to me that there are two things that need to be learned. One, I think people need to learn critical thinking. That is, <clears throat> when you read something in the newspaper, that's not necessarily true. Even when some important person like a president says something, that's not necessarily true. And so we need to learn how to evaluate and how to separate um, accuracy from inaccuracy, theory from fact, uh, opinion from the, the real world. The other thing that we need, I think, and I have no idea how to do it, I think we need to teach responsibility. How do you teach someone to be an upstander? You know, I, I go to schools a lot and I talk about the Holocaust. In, in Minnesota, uh, eighth graders are required to learn about the Holocaust. So I'm very popular in what, eighth what, grade. What are, what are their responses? Truly? Oh, they're, they're extraordinarily interested. Okay. And I tried to make it modern. I talk about bullying. How is it that I can get kids to watch in the playground how someone is being bullied and not participate? You know, there is the bully, and again, there is the bullied, the person who is being the victim, and then there are all these other people who we want to change from bystanders to upstanders how do i tickle do them we, to yeah how do we get the first mover so to speak to make yeah. to make that move not just necessarily in fear of how he's being or she's being judged by the other ones who are also onlookers but waiting for somebody else to make that first move 
and through that it gets so watered down that nobody makes the first move so indeed how do we get particularly today's generation to just make this extra step and i would uh, inevitably it starts at home yes as does the learning about clear thinking have to start at home the parents have to do clear thinking but if the parents are, are have predis are predisposed mm -hmm. to being of one persuasion, they're not going to be quite open to other persuasion. You said earlier that the Germans were very successful in stripping all the Jewish Germans of their citizenship. But the German government recently changed its position and extended the invitation to those who were stripped of their citizenship to reapply and then become a German citizen again. As far as I understand, you actually did go down that path. And in a wonderful ceremony here at the Germanic American Institute, uh, the Consul General came and awarded me a document, and I, I was reinstated as a German citizen, which was my birthright. You know, I was born in Hanover and automatically would be a citizen, but it was taken away. What's your, what's your thought process behind this, emotionally as well as uh, from a logical perspective? I belong to a survivor's group survivors from Greece and Czechoslovakia and Romania and all all over Europe and I said hey I have a chance to become to re-become a German citizen um, what do you think should I do that and literally half of them said oh ick ugly what a terrible thought I wouldn't do anything with those people mm -hmm. you know, pushing them away um, the other half said, the leading country in Europe right now in accepting refugees, in understanding the, these difficulties, is Germany. You should, I should, become a German citizen so I can stand next to Angela Merkel and say, I'm with you. You're, you're a wonderful person. And and and, uh, and so I accepted that argument. I thought that was really wise. Uh, another part was that if Germany wants reconciliation, then I have to accept that this is a new generation. Mm -hmm. These are not the Germans who ran the concentration camps or who put signs on benches that said, these are new Germans who have different politics and different culture in there. And if they want to reach out and build bridges, if they want reconciliation, I ought not to turn them away. I ought to say, hey, why not? Reconciliation doesn't necessarily equal forgiveness in a sense of everything that you have experienced, everything that you have truly been through, having been reinstated, now being a German-American dual citizen, have you accepted 
but also have you found a way to perhaps forgive? And if so, how did you go about that? I gave a talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, did I forgive? Hell no. Uh, but I, if I fester the wound, then I'll be sick forever. It hurts me. Uh, I didn't forgive, but I can work with my wounds and have me heal and still say that just because they did some bad thing that I should hold that against you. Now, there you are, speaking, Michael, with a, with a Germanic accent. Should I hate you because you sound like those people? Um, not at all. You're a new generation, new people, and obviously not of that those politics. Um, so yeah, I uh, I didn't forgive, but there's no reason why the the new German can't be a brother, sister. I'm a product of the '70s. My dad was born in 1950. And I see the same tendency with me as I've seen with my dad, as I still see with today's generation, particularly in Austria and in Germany. We are rather educated about the Holocaust because we do keep it at the forefront of our own history. But we seem to have an incredible inability to, to let it rest, to not to forget, but to move on. We, we don't talk about it. Our conversations when we meet people are not necessarily surface level, but we don't go down into the depth of family development in fear of we don't exactly know what we are going to uncover or in what, uh, what region we push the person that we talk to because one of their ancestors could have been on either side of the fence. And this is something we try to avoid as much as humanly possible. How do we escape our own detriment here of still remembering, but finally being able to move on? Is, is there even the ability to move on, or are we going to forever be marked by what happened way before us? Yes. Yes, you can move on. And yes, you will be forever be marked. Um, think of the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. um, not only do we remember the Inquisition, we ought to. Does it mark Spain? Does it mark the Catholic Church? You better believe it. Um, how do people deal with it? And that, I think, is where we deal with reconciliation. Okay. So, I was a Jew in Nazi Germany. What are you going to do? And you took away my citizenship. Mm -hmm. Indeed, your grandfather did, as it turned out. So what are you going to do about it? Well, you say, hey, let's reach out and offer them citizenship. Let's offer reparations. Mm -hmm. Let's offer a trip to Germany. I just made that up. Yeah. You know, a, tr a, a two-week trip to your hometown. 
to the survivors. You can never reconcile with the dead. The six million who died, who I shouldn't say died, the six million who were murdered are dead. And that pain still festers in me to some extent. And there is no way you can make up for that. But you can talk to the survivors in such a way that you honestly say, I really feel bad about this. Reconciliation means reaching out and doing something. Um, you can't, as, as Martin Luther suggested, you can't just buy yourself out of sin. Uh, you have to do something to earn the forgiveness. So what is the New Germany doing? The New Germany supports Israel, has supported Israel, has been really good about that. The Germans will always be marked. All of history will and should remember that. But at the same time, we should say, yeah, that was Spain in 1492, the Inquisition, or that was... Um, it was Germany in 1935. And and so history ought to remember history. Uh, the question you're asking goes beyond our interview about Germany. Yeah. Uh, just this morning I read about a Confederate statue being removed in, in uh, uh, the University of North Carolina. And the Confederate statue represents uh, slavery. It re represents the Confederate army. However, there is an American history. Mm -hmm. And what, uh, what Caucasians, what Europeans did to Native Americans, to the Native people, uh, is horrific. And that has to be recorded and, as you call it, marked. I think... Europeans will forever be marked by what they did to Native people. But that was then. And whether it could happen again, and I'm sure it could happen again, but that was then and this is now, and we do have to move on, and the festering doesn't help anybody. The group of survivors is getting smaller and smaller. Fewer and fewer survivors are capable of truly delivering their stories how are we going to continue to tell your story to those who follow us when the method of telling has so significantly changed? Michael, you ask really hard questions. You've been um, asked all the easy questions <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think the, the question is important. I say I'm really popular in eighth grade because I'm one of the few survivors still alive. Mm -hmm. And all the survivors that are still alive, survivors of the Holocaust, were child survivors, were young at the time. Uh, the rest are gone. Um, but that sells. The eighth graders really get excited when they can ask questions of someone who was there. Well, were you really there? What did you do? What did you say? What did your father say? 
um, when I refer to my father as Papa in our talks, mm -hmm. whoa, you know, and suddenly it comes right into the living room. Now, um, the survivors will soon all be gone. Um, I think movies are a great educator. Um, if you can create an event, say in a movie or in a play, where I feel, I feel like a slave, then I can remember slavery in the United States. I really can remember as though I were there. If you can create, I just finished watching um, a movie um, about the Holocaust, and I've got to remember it because I felt as if I was there in Theresienstadt. Mm -hmm. It was there. Um, the counterfeiters, it's acted so well, and the suspense is so great, and my participation in the movie was so much, as was my wife's. You know, we watched together, and I think it was, of all the zillions of Holocaust movies now available, I think it was the most powerful that I've seen. Um, I think if one can recreate the experience, we can teach young people. My concern is that we are slowly but surely trending away from, from being available through authenticity and vulnerability to the needs of others. Yeah, it's, it's everyone's responsibility all the time, everywhere. Last question that I have for you. Uh-oh. Um, it's what I'm wondering is which is the one or perhaps are the few questions that people should be asking you but nobody does ask. Let me go back to the to the very, very beginning of our conversation. And you asked who I am really. People ask me all about the Holocaust and my feelings and how it influences my children and grandchildren. Um, people talk about what I know about the Holocaust. And, and every once in a while, Michael, I'm really tired of being a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think people understand that, that we, all of us who have survived the Holocaust or have survived whatever, are also real people. Um as I said, I taught at the university 50-plus years. Um, I have a wife, children, grandchildren. Um, I love opera. Uh, there are so many things about that are of interest to me in my life. And yet, because I'm one of the few survivors left, for you to interview and for to make talk give talks at, to the eighth graders yeah. um i have a glut of genocide and uh i often become tired of 
talking about it. It's so much responsibility. Is there anything that that you still want to get off off your chest, so to speak? Anything that you any point, any topic that you want to speak to that perhaps we did not cover today? I think as as we're summarizing, I think it's important to think about the dead. Um, I was thinking of my mother. My mother lost a, two sisters, all of her cousins, uncles, aunts, but two sisters. Two, there were three girls in her family. Two, one died in the Riga ghetto. The other was murdered in Auschwitz. Um, how does my mother feel? How do all the survivors feel about the dead? We talk about the dead, we talk about the survivors. How do the survivors feel about the dead? And that's something that can be explored further in another podcast. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time today. How do you end a conversation that should never have an ending? Throughout our talk, I felt Fred describing the intersection of heaviness and hope, of sadness and pain, but also of reconciliation and healing. Above all, though, there was wisdom. And I do sincerely hope that we have the privilege of welcoming Fred back to explore more of his views and perspectives. Until then, thank you for joining us. And if you have any questions or topics that you would like us to consider, please email us at language at gai-mn.org.